We know that you sit on heaven's throne, that you reign, have for eternity past and will forever and ever. I pray that we would bend our minds and our wayward hearts toward your purposes and toward your love for us in Christ. I pray that you would draw to Jesus those who are separated from his love and saving grace and that you would warm the heart of your people, rebuke us, strengthen us, encourage us, restore us as we strive to walk in fellowship with you. Use this time for the glory of your name and for the good of our hearts. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. Some years ago, a survey asked participants to rate their driving skills. 93% said that they were above average. It gets better. A full 36%, more than one in three, said, I am better at driving while texting than most people who are not texting. The other 67% said, I don't think so. 60, whatever, I got the number wrong. But amazing, isn't it? How we see ourselves sometimes. There's, that's a lot of delusional drivers on the road. As if I had to tell you that. Social psychologists label this the illusory effect, or more popularly, we will appreciate this, the Lake Wobegon effect, where we're all above average. We tend to overestimate our abilities and status when comparing ourselves with others. In certain Eastern cultures, people tend to go in the other direction, and they underestimate where they land with their abilities, perhaps as a motivation to improve themselves or to get along with others. uh, But what is apparently no problem in America is for us to assess ourselves too low. We struggle to see ourselves differently than we really are. Where things get ugly is when the illusory effect links arms with envy. We fail to properly assess our own abilities. We fail to properly assess where we are in a status within any particular community. And then we grow envious of people who seem to have been given more status, more esteem, greater responsibility, higher pay than we think they deserve in comparison with us. And it makes us mad. Or we grow bitter. We might be filled with self-pity and withdraw in some settings. Or maybe it drives us to try to literally get even. To even things out to where they ought to be if the world was really fair and what it ought to be. I think we come by this weakness rather naturally. Satan lusted for equality with God. He did not see himself appropriately and didn't compare himself rightly. And then he lured Adam and Eve to want an egalitarian world. An egalitarian world as they related to God and even as they related with one another. And Satan twisted that relationship. 
And now our fallen hearts, let's admit it, naturally embrace egalitarianism in the wrong ways. We despise hierarchy and we despise authority. Not hard for us to dip into the anger, the bitterness, and the selfish withdrawal as we take in those areas of life. Our Creator, let's be fair, loves egalitarian relationships on many levels and in many forms of application. But God also ties human flourishing to structures of authority and hierarchy. This is how our Creator works. And this is His love for His people. He puts leaders in place. He calls us not to resist authority structures in most cases, but to welcome them and to align our lives to them. We are called, as we know and hear often in this congregation as the Word of God is taught, we hear often that we are to submit to governing authorities. Romans chapter 13. We are called to honor pastoral leadership as a congregation, 1 Thessalonians 5. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, to perceive their leadership calling and to align with it and encourage it and walk in fellowship with it. Children are called to obey their parents, to know that mom and dad are given a degree of authority by God to which children are to submit. And why does God do this? He does this because He loves us. He does this because He knows how we can flourish as a people. I think of this in 2 Samuel 23, David's last words, this oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high and anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Notice that he is a man who was raised on high. He was given responsibility to lead God's people. And notice where he goes then in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me statement. His word is on my tongue. Repetition said, just said that. The God of Israel has spoken. He says it a third time. The rock of Israel has said to me. He says it a fourth time. What's he doing? Getting our attention. Listen, this is the word of the Lord to his people. What does he say? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Using his gifted poetic mind, using his tongue to the best of his ability, he describes the beauty of God's gift of leadership. And this isn't pride in David. There's a lot of pride in David in the pages of Scripture. We see that pride, but that's not what's happening here. Here he is saying, this was God's calling upon my life out of love for his people to set me in this place that they might flourish like a well-watered field. It's God's grace. God ordained leaders in positions of authority is a gift from the Lord. And we know often that it can become a curse as sinful people fail other people. 
But let's not lose sight of what God intends and designs. And the problem in light of all of this is that delusional self-assessment coupled with envy can lead us to refuse this gift and to suffer the consequences for doing so. And this is the message that we find here in Numbers chapter 12 this morning. Remember in chapter 11, and for those that uh, weren't with us perhaps last week or thinking through this passage uh, here this morning, but in chapter 11, we remember as we came to that stage in the journey that the sojourning Israelites grumbled against the difficult conditions that they've encountered here in the wilderness. God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He's delivered them from Pharaoh's army. He splits the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to exit Egypt in safety. He drowns Pharaoh's army. He provides manna each morning for Israel to eat. He shades them with His glory cloud as His presence goes with them and leads them to this land of promise. God taking them to the land that He promised four centuries earlier to Abraham. They are that privileged generation. They are these ones who will now go and receive this land of promise. The rich hills of Canaan dripping with fertility. This beautifully watered place of fertility where God is taking them with leadership that will help them get there, ultimately under His leadership. This is the grace that they're receiving. And where do we find them in chapter 11? Grumbling. Complaining. Airbrushing the canvas of her, of her memory. Complaining that things were better back in Egypt. There where she was brought almost to the point of death as an enslaved nation, in utter misery, day after day, and all the Israelites can say is, you remember the fish, the leeks, the onions, the garlic? You remember the good times we had there eating? Yeah, eating after a day of servitude that brought them near to the point of death. But they airbrush the canvas of their memory to say, we want to be somewhere else. We do not want to submit to where God is taking us. We don't like this wilderness. And God roared against these grumblers, striking many of them dead in the wilderness. And where we left them last week is burying the bodies and then moving on northward where they were intended to go anyway, where God would take them in His mercy, but burying the bodies in the barren wilderness on their way north to the promised land. We pick this up now in chapter 12 and note first of all that Miriam and Aaron join the deal as they challenge Moses' leadership. It's really unexpected as we come to this place that they would join in the grumbling. But we find it here, 12.1, that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And they did so because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Miriam and Aaron, remember, are Moses' siblings. Miriam was a prophetess. She was a leader among the women of Israel, according to Exodus 15. We see her in that role, described as a prophetess, and we see her in a leadership position among the women. Aaron was, of course, the high priest 
You think of it, in this priestly nation, he is the one individual who is given the freedom to go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle once per year on the Day of Atonement to represent God's people. He is the representative in a unique sense as the high priest of the holy nation. But in chapter 11, the people grumbled against God and His provision. And here, Miriam and Aaron grumble against Moses and his leadership. We don't know the backstory. I'm sure it was complicated. But along the way, their hearts were corrupted with envy as they watched the status of their little brother Moses grow. And they mount an attack against him, an attack that was meant to dim his light in the esteem of the nation and to raise theirs higher than they thought that it was, that they estimated that it was, to exalt themselves in the eyes of the people. To matters more at hand, however, here in verse 1, they start by condemning Moses' marriage. You see that word in verse 1, right at the beginning, Miriam and Aaron spoke. The Hebrew word spoke there, what we don't have in English, is that it is feminine, singular in its ending, which is very unusual in the stretch of the narratives that have brought us to this place, but points to Miriam then as the instigator of this particular complaint. She complains that Moses has married a Cushite woman. Now this may be a reference to Zipporah, whom we have met in the book of Exodus and has been uh, with, if it's her, has been with Moses for 40 years. If Zipporah was a Midianite from the region of Cushan, this is likely her and a reference to her. But a Cushite in the Old Testament normally refers to someone who is from the land of Ethiopia on the border of Egypt. That's typically how the word is used. Perhaps Zipporah had died. Perhaps this is a second wife in addition to Zipporah. We don't know. We're not given the details here. But there's two reasons why I think it's not Zipporah. And that is, number one, Moses married her, as I said, 40 years earlier. This seems to be a strange time for this particular complaint when they've gotten used to this woman for four decades of their life. That seems strange. Secondly is the explanatory phrase here, for he had married a Cushite woman. That seems to indicate from the narrator that we are receiving new information here. That there's something that's unique, something new that has been added now to the information of the Pentateuch of the text. And so for those reasons, I think it's probably an Ethiopian wife that he has taken. Perhaps Zipporah has died. We don't know the circumstances. But this marriage troubles Miriam. Whoever she was, wherever this woman was from, it became an excuse for Miriam to criticize Moses. Now, why does she do so? Why does she attack this marriage and attack this woman? We cannot know. Wow, people go crazy about this as straight-up racism. I, we just simply can't read that much into the text. I, maybe that's what it is, and that's horrible. And it would be wrong if that was the case. We just can't read that into the text. Miriam certainly claimed to speak for God. I know the truth here. 
I'm taking the right position. And I think there's, there's little doubt in my mind that she's trying to protect the holiness of God in her twisted and wrong way of thinking. And so she attacks Moses along these lines. So let, let, we need to be careful not to read too much into the story. But what we have that is clearly given to us, and that is this terrifying fact. You've married, potentially, this Ethiopian woman. This is wrong. And the terrifying fact is that God does not agree. What she says in her criticism and in her attack is not God's mind. He approved this marriage. The woman had aligned with Israel as she came into the household of Moses, and God received her just as much as Moses had received her. This Cushite was indeed God's gift to Moses. God does not join with Miriam's attack here. He doesn't say, yes, you are right, this marriage is wrong. She is a gift to Moses. And so by attacking Moses, Miriam aligns herself not only against Moses, but truly against God himself. This is so helpful to us as we try to understand our own lives. This is just the presenting problem. This isn't really what's going on. This is the sensational headline news, an emotionally charged, riveting social issue that explodes, sending relational shrapnel flying everywhere. This marriage is wrong. Well, that gets everybody's attention. But the explosive emotional complaint against Moses was merely the spark that ignited the deeper powder keg below. It was not the fundamental problem. That surfaces in verse 2. What's the real issue? Here it is. And they said, not singular feminine anymore, but now Aaron joining full in with Miriam's attack. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. This is pure envy. God spoke to and through Moses to the nation, and he had indeed spoken to Miriam and to Aaron as well. The problem is that they envy Moses' greater esteem in the eyes of the nation. They envy his position of greater responsibility to lead that nation, and they want what he has. They refuse to rank themselves rightly under his leadership in any way and say and make a play to be on the same level in the esteem of the assembly. Problem is, verse 2, that God not only speaks, he also hears. And this rolling complaint against Moses' wife and marriage And this rolling complaint against Moses' leadership, God hears. It's an ominous note. And the Lord heard it. In verses 3 through 9, we see God's challenge of Miriam and Aaron's audacity. It comes, first of all, by way of an editorial comment here in verse 3. 
Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. A principle to understand narratives of the Bible. In biblical narratives, always trust the narrator. We cannot always trust the person speaking. We have to discern, are they speaking truth or are they speaking error when they are quoted? But when the biblical narrator speaks, you can take it to the bank. That's truth. Because under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that one speaks the truth. Sometimes the speaker spews falsehood, but the biblical narrator communicates the facts. What is accurate, what has truly happened. Here, the narrator weighs in with this truth. Moses was the meekest man on planet earth. This Hebrew word speaks of humility. It's not always translated meekness, but it's commonly used of those who suffer trial and throw themselves humbly, dependently, and devotedly upon the Lord. I think one of the reasons that Moses is the most meek man in the world, the one most humbled, is not because he's weak. This is not a word for wimpy. I think the reason that he is so designated is because there was no one on earth at this time that had a bigger job. The task and the responsibility that weighed on his shoulders was immense. And so he had become entirely aware of his incapacity to fulfill God's calling. He was in this attitude toward life, in this relationship with God to say, I need you. It's not in me. And so I think the indication is there's nothing coming back from Moses to Miriam and Aaron. No defense, no fight, no war, no battle. He's turning this all over to God. I think that's the idea of this editorial comment. It also indicates that Moses then did not choose to defend himself against the harsh and unjust charges, even though, in some sense, he may have had a right to do so. You see the Apostle Paul doing this on occasion. But we hear nothing in the text from Moses, and this comment would indicate that, not, that he did not respond in kind. That's really ironic. In chapter 11, where do we find Moses? Moses is saying, I have been called to lead this nation and I want nothing to do with it. This is too big for me. Get me out of this. Let me go. If you're not going to deal with this, God, just kill me now. That's Moses in chapter 11. Then we come to chapter 12. Where are Miriam and Aaron? Ironically, we want his job. If this is not human nature... When we have responsibility, we groan under it. When we do not have a certain responsibility that we see others shouldering with God's blessing, we envy and want that. They are our ancestors in more ways than one. So while Miriam and Aaron squawk, Moses remains silent, but God's God does not. Verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Come out here, that is, out of your camp and its location to the tabernacle in the center of the encamped nation. 
Don't you get the picture here of three siblings uh, fighting in the backyard and dad says, get into the living room right now. We're going to have an intervention. It just sounds that way. They're acting in an immature way and the text almost seems to wink at us and say that. As God says, come to my room and we're going to talk. Verse 5, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. We find then in verses 6 and following God's verdict first on Moses. I want you to hear this, you two, as Moses listens in. Verse 6, he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to that prophet in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. God, particularly in this time, uniquely in this time, but particularly here, conveyed truth to his people through dreams and visions. They entered into something of an alternate, alternate state and they received a message from God which they had many times coming almost in riddle that they had to figure out. That was normal and all would have understood what he meant. Verse 7, but that's not the way it is with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So God's assessment of Moses is clear. He is faithful in my house. That is, he is the trustworthy, reliable, chosen steward of the house of Israel. You are complaining against his position. I'm telling you as the creator and the one who has called him, he's doing what I gave him to do. I put him in this position, and it's my will that he stays in that position and continues leading my people as he is. He is indeed unlike, secondly, all other prophets, including the two of you. This is my prerogative. This is my wisdom for the situation. I speak to him as the leader of my people in a way that I speak to no one else. This is right. This is true. These are the facts, and it's good. And it's for your good and the good of the nation. I don't think there's any parallel specifically to this in our world. But as we go into their world and try to hear the message and discern its meaning, this is what God is saying. That's what God thinks about Moses. We move then in verse 8 to what God thinks about Miriam and Aaron through verse 9. Verse 8, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I can imagine the hair standing up on their body. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. God challenges their audacity. They tapped their emotions. They got in touch with their pride. They called it like they saw it. They raised a complaint. One error. They failed to ask God what He thought. They failed to tap into His discernment of where the situation stood. 
Well, what God thought is now clear. And verse 9 ends on yet another ominous note. God hears, God leaves. He leaves, in a sense, fuming at Miriam and Aaron's audacity. We cringe as we wait for the next section where God strikes Miriam and humbles Aaron in verses 10 through 16. Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. He's shocked as he sees this. Leprosy, a name given for a wide range of skin problems that we don't even know fully about. Much like we use the word cancer, it covered a lot of different areas. But the the long and the short of it was that Miriam was struck with a debilitating condition that would have forced her, according to the holiness rituals, to live outside the camp. She was at the heart of the camp, around the tabernacle, with the Aaronic families and clans. Now she has to go entirely outside all of Israel as she seeks to limit their susceptibility to receiving from her this condition. There's an interesting connection here with Exodus 4. And the leprous hand of Moses. Where Moses' authority before God was questioned in Egypt, leprosy proved God's position. I don't think it's a mistake that here in the wilderness, when Moses' authority is being questioned, that leprosy again is chosen by God to make clear his position She's in a bad, bad state. And Aaron sees this and sees their sin and realizes what has happened. Verse 11, Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Mother's womb, that is a reference to a stillborn child whose skin would sometimes peel off as, uh, with the amniotic fluids as that child had no life. He said, this is what her skin looks like. Don't allow her to die this way. Aaron pleads, interestingly, not with God, but with Moses. He realizes he has acted with treasonous moral delusion. He and Miriam have sinned against God and Moses as God's leader. And so he pleads with Moses to intervene, to intercede before God for the good of their sister. And so verse 13, Moses cried to the Lord, O Lord, please heal her, please. In chapter 11, Moses did not look too good as an intercessor. But in chapter 12, he's much improved. This short staccato prayer breathes desperation and earnest intercession for his sister. Moses has not grown bitter at the attack. He has retained a tender heart toward Miriam. He is a meek man. He's humbly dependent on the Lord and he pleads for this one who has attacked his authority and has maligned his name Among the people, he prays to God for her rescue. She may die a long, painful death. She may remain the rest of her life separated outside the camp. But 
this text points us to the utter necessity of a faithful and effective advocate and intercessor. This is a theme that God continues to play out in His Word. When we sin, as we all do, when we break the law of God, as we all do, we need someone to come between. We need an intercessor. We need a mediator to bring us to God. We are more like Miriam than anyone else in this passage. It is not that we come with a literal skin disease, but we come with souls that are eaten up and sloughing off in death and error. We break God's law and we need an advocate pleading our case, our security, and our forgiveness. And this is where this text and all of the Old Testament points to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father did not merely spit on Him. We'll look at that in a moment. But He sent Him to die for our sin. He sent Him to bear all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our wrong. To pay the cost of it. So that this system that we have seen in the book of Leviticus, and that's played out again here in the book of Numbers, where there is a sacrifice that substitutes for the sinner, Christ fulfills that picture. He stands in as that sacrifice and now pleads for us. He intercedes for His people to say, the penalty of sin has been paid. I plead for this man, for this woman, for this child. Those who have trusted my payment of grace to receive the forgiveness of sin. So as Moses mediates and intercedes for the people under the old covenant, so this greater Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, mediates a new covenant where He pays the cost of our sin, gives to us hearts that are no longer hardened, but tender and humble like Moses was and who indwells us with His Spirit that we might walk in His presence and love Him and know Him. Here in this early stage of redemption, Moses stands in that place and he pleads for Miriam. And I think we are meant to see on this side of the cross an image of the Savior pleading for us. I've paid the cost. This is my child. Forgive and restore. That connection is made in Hebrews chapter 3 where a reference is made to Moses in his stewardship of the household of Israel that we read here. And the connection is made to Jesus the Son who is faithful in all of God's house that is faithful as God's Savior and steward of His people. We see images of that here, precursors of it, shadows that have come into fullness in Christ. He intercedes for Miriam, and Miriam is restored, and Israel is delayed, we find then in verse 14. But the Lord said to Moses, I think the but's a wonderful word here in our English translation, that is, I will forgive her, I will restore her, but, here's the qualifier, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? 
Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. Well, that's context we don't understand. But in their setting, in the ancient Near East, to, be, to have your face spit upon was an act of shame, that you have done something seriously wrong. And so a father would spit in the face of a child, and this child would thus be shamed before the community identified as one who has done something wrong. It sounds horrifying to us, and I don't think we should practice that or even think about it. But this is the case in their setting, in their culture, and what God is saying is, listen, if it was something that small, if her sin was that small that her father spit in her face and she had to spend seven days isolated as a ritual sign of her guilt and shame, Think of what Miriam has done in comparison to that. It's kind of a subtle way of saying she deserves to die for this rebellion, but I will restore her. But let her be outside the camp for seven days. So Miriam complained that she should be more highly esteemed in the eyes of the nation. People ought to see my status and my abilities and where I stand with God. Well, they're seeing it now as she is separated outside the camp, away from God's presence in the tabernacle. All Israel sees. 15, so Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again, healed, forgiven, restored. But everybody sat there for seven days. Remember the complaining about the food. Remember the complaining about the difficulty of the journey northward. Now they get to wait seven days. Everybody realizing why we're not moving. Because of Marion's attack upon Moses' leadership. And the fact that she's singled out here would again indicate that Aaron seems to be falling in with her, where she seems to have been the particular leader of that challenge. He joining her rather than correcting her, but she bearing the particular weight, and so God disciplining her this way. When Israel was delivered through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army drowned, she led an exuberant company of women to sing God's praises as a prophetess. But the next mention, this is sad, but the next mention of Miriam's name in the text of Numbers is when? When her death is announced. She vanishes from leadership in Israel. And we're reminded then, again, that one way God loves us is by providing leaders in positions of authority that provide structure and direction to our lives. Maybe on a, a lower level, this is what we are to gain from this passage. We realize as Christ's people that we are called by His grace to submit to the laws of the land in which we live. There are some laws to which we cannot submit due to the Lordship of Christ. And when I say we, I'm talking about the Christian communion worldwide. Probably can be the case here once in a while, but in some places there has to be a resistance to governmental authorities. Without going into any detail, and it's not all that dramatic, but this church has collectively together disobeyed some laws. Not in this country, but in others. 
Nothing dramatic. Don't worry about it. But there are certain places where we stepped into situations where God's law had to trump man's law. When Christ says, take my saving gospel into all the world, and governmental structures say, not happening, we have to say, yes it is. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world in comparison to our little places have paid with their own blood. That's good. That's how you relate to government. But let's remove that situation and say that in the vast majority of cases, we need to choose to obey the laws of the land. This is God's grace to us. We need to choose to be submissive to governing authorities. We are to treat them with honor and respect. I'm thankful God's word doesn't say you have to agree with them. You have to adore them. You have to not see how idiotic they can be at times. We see the failure of governmental leaders. We recognize where they do not submit to the law of Christ. But as we look at the larger governmental structures, we orient ourselves not toward rebelling, not toward taking personal advantages, but saying what Romans 13 says. This is God's assignment to them to control the world in which we live such that the gospel can be spread. And so we respond as law abiding citizens. Not because we agree with all of our governmental representatives, but because we know there's a God in heaven that's bigger than all of the mess, and we submit. Within families, as we have discussed, there is a relationship between husbands and wives that God lays out in His Word with authority. And that is to be honored and respected As we think of children within the home, you are to obey your parents. You're to come under their authority and respect. It doesn't mean you agree with it. It doesn't mean that you think they're the best parents on earth. In fact, if you're living in home, I guarantee you, you don't live with the best parents on earth. Maybe someday when you're 40 or 50, you might start rethinking that a little bit. Maybe even in your 30s. But yeah, you're not real happy with who your parents are sometimes. But God in His grace, young people, says to you, trust me and bring yourself under their authority. Do what they direct you to do. There's an appropriate place to ask for a different direction. There's an appropriate place to push them in right ways, to even challenge what they think sometimes, particularly as you get older, with respect. We're not saying that they're always right, but you need to recognize that obeying your parents is a response of your heart to God. It's not just about them being your parents and you being stuck with them. There's a rebellion that can go on in our hearts. And within the church context, there is also authority that is established within the assembly. And it is right and proper for members to be concerned that they line themselves up, that they align with 
those structures of authority. Again, not because the pastors of the church are without error, not because they are sinless, but with respect and with honor to cooperate as a congregation under those structures of authority. And I think in many, many ways, this church has been a model of that. And I thank God for that. But we recognize it's not because any pastor's special as such, but it is the work that they do. And we could pile text on top of text here to support what I believe we know as a church. But resisting the leaders that God places in your life, just say it simply, it's not wise. It's downright dangerous. Remember from this text, God hears and God sees. He knows what you're saying. He knows how you're living. And even if those in authority do not catch you, you're getting away with nothing. God sees and God hears. This is His grace to us. But the greatest of all dangers is that we would reject proper authority due to a failure to discern our calling in life due to envy of position that really reveals the much larger problem of resisting God as we claim to honor Him. We can say that we stand for Him. We can say that we are representing His cause and what we're really doing is walking in rebellion against Him. That's the frightening thing of this passage. Now, we can object, of course. It's hard to follow imperfect leaders. Yes, it is. And it's hard to lead imperfect followers, just as Moses found in chapter 11. But I think as we deal with imperfect leaders, we deal with imperfect government, we deal with imperfect law enforcement, we deal with imperfect parents, we deal with imperfect pastors, how do you go about that? How do you even rightly object when they are off track? There's a whole range from civil disobedience in some situations, which is right. But I think far more often our life plays out in a way that what we should be doing is praying. We should be waiting on God to intervene. I don't mean to say there's never a time to act, there's never a time to object, but maybe particularly as Western Christians, we don't have much of a category for God changing things through prayer. We'll get it done through legislation. We'll get it done by leaving the home. We'll get it done by walking away from leaders' counsel or something of the like. Do we think to pray... Do we think to ask God to intervene? Are we willing to do the slow drip intercession for the church, for the family, for the nation, and let God work in His time? I think we should also in these situations seek godly counsel that can hold us and leaders responsible. Maybe we think particularly within a home or particularly within the church if you are convinced that the authority is wrong, that the one in authority, that the leader that God has placed in position is wrong, it would be good to seek wise counsel. Not simply to go on your own emotions, 
and to find some hook that you don't like, like Miriam did with Moses' marriage, and to allow that to be an explosive opposition that really is reflecting that you're in opposition to God's structures of authority. Get counsel. Bring people in. And remember, in all of it, when we look at imperfect leaders, maybe particularly in the church, remember James 3.1. Leaders are judged with greater severity. So if there's a sense that leaders are free to do wrong and get away with it, cancel that idea. In God's economy, He makes it clear that leaders are judged with greater severity. They're held to a higher accounting. And that weighs on them if they are spirit-indwelt leaders. They recognize God hears. They recognize God listens. They know that they must give account in a unique way. So pray for them. Bless them. Honor them by choosing to follow their lead. Is it ever okay to resist leaders in positions of authority? Please allow me to keep staking that qualifier. Yes, there is. But I don't think it's what our typical problem is. The typical problem is inside our own hearts. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't like it that someone else is in a position of telling me what to do. I don't like authority because that's where sin takes us. We don't like to obey God and His law. But this is where Christ redeems us. From that sinful orientation to trust in His saving grace and to walk in humility and faithfulness as one who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He says, follow me as Lord and Savior. And we say, He's a faithful master. We walk with Him in service, humility, love, and grace. And we know that the structures of life, as broken as they are, are God's love for us, His grace to us, pointing us ultimately to His power and authority, which will never harm us, but only save us as we humble ourselves in repentant trust. Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord, for this reminder, and we need it in a world where we so differ with those that lead us in so many ways, in a world on a closer level in home and church where we rub shoulders with sinners as sinners. We need you, and I pray that you would apply uniquely these truths to this congregation today and bless us for the glory of your name. Please grant us understanding that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and may we seek always to align our opinions with your judgments, not just our own feelings and emotions and desires at the moment and false delusional comparisons. Help us to know that you are Lord of every situation. And for those who know not Christ, may they seek in him today their mediator, their intercessor, the one who holds out the promise of forgiveness of sin and of life eternal. Through Christ we pray.